I am happy and honored to bring on Oswaldo Safala, author, academic at CUNY, and currently a Fulbright scholar living in Mexico City. In fact, when we first talked earlier this week, he had barely just moved into his new place in Mexico City with his family. Oswaldo is originally from Ciudad Juarez. Every once in a while, there is a book that comes out that challenges preconceptions and narratives in profound ways, in worldview-orienting ways. And I have to say that the book Drug Cartels Do Not Exist falls distinctly into that category. The book, first published in Spanish in 2018 as Carteles No Existen, will be coming out in English next year. As you will see in our conversation, Oswaldo discusses his thought-provoking title and what he means by it. He talks about his time as a reporter in Ciudad Juarez in the 1990s and how that experience informed and is foundational to his thoughts today. He discusses what he terms the national security storytelling machine and tears into preconceptions of how drug traffickers are often caricatured and how their stories are dramatized and exaggerated, masking some of the more sinister trends of resource extraction happening often in the same uh, exact areas where there's a lot of news about drug traffickers fighting with each other. Please listen. You will not be disappointed. Well, uh, Os- Oswaldo, I, I just want to start out by um, with your with the title of your book, um, "Drug Cartels Do Not Exist," and I w- I would love for you to um, just give a little bit of explanation for that title because it's it's a very thought provoking one, especially since we're we're always told that drug cartels do exist. So could you could you um, could you just explain a little bit about what is behind the title and what the meaning of the title of the book is? Great. No, uh, Drug Cartels, it's, uh, Drug Cartels Do Not Exist is a book that aims at criticizing the language that we use daily uh, to talk about uh, the phenomenon of drug trafficking. And it does by doing uh, at least you know a couple operations. The first one is that, that it shows that most of what we use the language that we use to talk about these organizations and, and to talk about the phenomenon itself of drug trafficking is really originally uh, conceived by official institutions, both in the U.S. and in Mexico. And so by arguing that drug cartels do not exist, what I'm actually trying to put uh, forward as an object of examination is the fact that we, we talk about a phenomenon that cannot be really understood from direct experience, but actually from the language that was built to conceive of it uh, for in, in, in the first instance. And so the cartels itself is it, it, a concept that, I, that, it, that can be originally traced back to uh, institutions like the DEA um, and, and, this, and the Department of Justice in the United States. And that has a long history and that connects with the prohibition and, and the anti-drug policy uh, organized in the U.S. back in the 1980s. And, and then that slowly had, was adapted into um, uh, Mexican uh, anti-drug policy in the subsequent decades. So when, when I say drug cartels do not exist, I do not mean to say that the violence does not exist or that drug trafficking itself is not a, a problem of concern. But, but, but instead, what I'm hoping to uh, argue is that um, the language that we use depicts a phenomenon that is not real and that instead has been exaggerated and magnified by, uh, by official discourse. So we all think of drug cartels 
as these organizations that are pyramidal, powerful, that are able to um, expand uh, even beyond Mexico into many countries. Some experts argue that, for example, the, the Sinaloa cartels has presence in over 100 countries in the world and that they're able not only to challenge uh, the Mexican state, but also uh, institutions uh, in, in the planet like you know Interpol or the DEA or the CIA. And so this imagination that we, um, that we take uh, at face value as reality uh, in, in, in the end, in the end um, um, supplements and, and contributes to the national security agenda of the United States and it advances geopolitical um, objectives from the global north into the global south and it pushes countries like Mexico or Colombia to increase their spending uh, for the military and to adopt and accept violent uh, and repressive uh, strategies that end up not only hurting society as a whole, of course, but also um, participating uh, into other objectives that have nothing to do or very little to do with uh, the drug, the so-called drug war. Uh, for example, one of those being uh, the, the extractive process that uh, goes on in those areas uh, where uh, the government, Mexican government and, and U.S. agencies claim to be fighting drug cartels. Uh, as, for example, in the uh, case of you know, the state of Tamaulipas, where you have uh, uh, organizations like Los Zetas, supposedly in control of the territory, where at the same time, simultaneously, there has been one of the largest extractive, extractive projects in the country. Uh, this being, of course, uh, the, ex the extraction of natural gas, shale gas, that, um, that has uh, been in the, in, the, in the making for decades, and in particular during the the most brutal years of the drug war. Um, and so on one hand, that uh, the official discourse uh, that, uh, that was created in the 1980s to, to talk about drug trafficking has permeated in society so much that has been conflated with reality, that we think of, uh, of drug cartels exactly in the same coordinates that official institutions are telling us to. Uh, and, and two, that this uh, discourse justifies, advances, and consolidates U.S. hegemony uh, in countries like Mexico, and that, of course, uh, this also contributes to that same uh, consolidation of, U, uh, of Mexican uh, uh, political and business elites in the country. So, so before, before you um, wrote this book and before you, were, you become an academic and, and um, you write a lot of essays, but before that, you were a reporter, right, in Ciudad Juarez. And I, and I just wanted to, to hear a little bit about that, especially um, how that kind of on the ground reporting experience really informed your thinking on these issues today. This is a great question because I was very fortunate to work in uh, El Diario de Juarez, which is the daily newspaper in Ciudad Juarez, right across from El Paso, Texas, at the border. Uh, back in the 1990s, uh, when in the newsroom there were uh, wonderful journalists, young journalists working, um, many of them who, of course, came to uh, develop their own uh, critical thinking on, on the drug trade and, and, and border uh, issues. And two of them became uh, direct mentors who, who have a tremendous influence uh, uh, in my work. One of them is Julian Cardona, who uh, unfortunately uh, passed away uh, last year, a wonderful uh, photojournalist 
who was a longtime collaborator of Charles Bowden uh, in multiple projects and who um, uh, in, in his own developed a, a critical understanding of the border. And the other one uh, being Ignacio Alvarado, an investigative journalist who, who was actually at the time the chief of the newsroom. And both of them literally came to me and at some point when I was 19 years old <laughs> and a young reporter uh, covering border uh, stories came to me and, and, and started, you know, helping me understand this phenomenon. The, the, the actual title, Drug Cartels and Addicts, this is something that I heard him say at some point uh, in the newsroom uh, by uh, pointing to the fact that every time we reported on, on drug organizations or, or kingpins, etc., we were inadvertently reproducing official discourse, right? So um, most of the stories that were coming, um, not only through our newsroom, of course, but to anybody's newsroom, you know, in El Paso and in, in, in other border cities, uh, were direct, um, in, in, were directly in correspondence with um, what the DEA, or the FBI, uh, were telling us, right? So we, in a very a critical way, we were not only just reproducing this phenomena, but we were giving them. It re, re, uh, a, a sort of a real sense or, or validation that um, made them not only believable but acceptable to the general public. So um, the work of journalists back then, and, I, and, and sadly I believe that that is still going on in, in many cases, uh, ends up um, contributing, validating, um, making a, a story sound real. And, and that, for me, is the most dangerous thing that one can do as a reporter, especially when it comes to drug trafficking. But also, it's a, it's a natural thing to do due to the difficulty of covering uh, these stories, right? Of course, you know, it's very difficult to, you know, go out on the streets and, and get a bunch of traffickers on the record, right? It's, it's very difficult to, to assess uh, critically this reality. And so most reporters depend... Uh, naturally, logically, on, on official sources, and, and when they rely so much of, of their reporting on, you know, the, the spokesman for the DA or an agent, you know, telling them something in the background, of course, you know, they, they are appropriating uh, that imaginary and they're transmitting that and, and, and organizing it as a narrative that ends up, of course, you know, validating um, uh, an official agenda. And so um, this experience in the 1990s was crucial because uh, these reporters at the, of course, to the, to the extent that it, 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 it made our work a lot more difficult, you know, we try to separate ourselves from official institutions. Now, of course, we would still come to the spokesman and, and try to get a, a soundbite or, 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 or some sort of a citation. But, but once you, um, you, you start organizing the story, it, we made it a point not to accept uh, a lot of this vocabulary or, or this, the, the understanding that they were telling us about these organizations. One of the examples I can give you comes to uh, uh, when the, mo the moment when uh, in the 1990s, around 1995, um, the Office for Drug Control Policy in, in the White House uh, organized this encounter at the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, with um, Janet Reno, then uh, the, the Attorney General of the U.S. You know, this is, of course, during the Clinton years uh, and, and the Mexican counterparts. And they started suddenly talking about the Juarez Cartel, you know, as the new kind of like national security threat. Um, and um, and when you go back in time and you see how or uh, this uh, almost like a media campaign began, you can quickly trace it, especially to official institutions arguing suddenly out of the blue that Amado Carrillo, you know, had 
kind of taken the throne, right? And, and, and has, has, was now, you know, the main drug lord to look after. And um, uh, there's a, a big story that came out in 1995 at the New York Times um, exposing you know, the new drug bosses. And part of the uh, critique that I do in my new book is that that story was, uh, 90% of it was based on a DEA intelligence, right? Well, not even intelligence, a DEA working report that was um, uh, leaked to them. Um, and um, that story with, you know, this official encounters, you know, with Mexican uh, authorities, then the FBI also releasing more information about Amado Carrillo created this, you know, narrative that, you know, in, in a year, kind of quick and quickly took its own um, force. And we were all suddenly thinking that the Juarez cartel was, you know, in fact, the largest drug organization in, in, in the country. Uh, ironically, Amado Carrillo died the following year, you know, in 1990, or, or two years after this whole, you know, media expose began, you know, in 1997. And, um, and so something to, one lesson to draw from this epoch is that very quickly, you know, they start replacing one trafficker with the other, you know, and, and this long stories, you know, uh, replaceable names and faces and, and even organizations just quickly, you know, took its own uh, speed, right? And, and so, you know, if you move in, uh, forward in the, in the following years, suddenly you, you can get very quickly dazzled and confused, you know, by, by the endless number, names, and, 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 and I guess uh, attributes of these organizations, you know. And, and, and so part of the, uh, the thing that to, that to consider when you think of drug trafficking is that you're really looking at a narrative machine, you know, a storytelling machine that seems to know um, uh, no, no end, you know, that, that endlessly repeats and combines names and even brings back from the past uh, traffickers that were long forgotten and suddenly are come back to full force, like, you know, the case of Rafael Caro Quintero, you know, who was um, uh, blamed with uh, the killing of uh, DEA agent Enrique Camarena back in, 90, in 1985, who was released in 2013 and now uh, allegedly uh, leads a new cartel fighting the drug war in Sonora. <laughs> and uh, um, so w what is fascinating to, to think um, uh, when you consider the long history of drug trafficking is that we are not really talking about traffickers themselves directly, but uh, stories that were that are articulated over and over, uh, many of them in a very contradictory way, um, and that in a in an almost endless uh, continuum, uh, keep pushing. You know the idea that we are to suffer an endless war between cartels, and that uh, our state has no recourse but to fight them. You know desperately uh, for control for the control of the na the national territory. And so this fantasy, this the story, this cumulative of, uh, accumulation of stories is what, I, where, what I'm trying to argue and, and, and analyze in, in Drug Cartels Do Not Exist in my new book, of course. Yeah, um, thinking of that, I, you can, it's almost like the, this, this, like you described a, a storytelling machine or, and, and, you know, bringing up, you know, figures from the past. So it's like narco myths or, you know, myth making almost. And, uh, and, and uh, thinking about that, like from the U.S. perspective, from this side of the border and um, thinking about the border, that sort of storytelling machine is on full, you know, full drive almost constantly. And it seems 
like uh it's it's a story that is used by the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection and Border Patrol um to justify this constant fortification of the of the US border and um and it's it's also a narrative that that um surprisingly is is one that's repeated by a lot of people no matter who they are um and um I wonder if you could you could comment on how how this narrative is being applied on from the border building aspect of it well it's it's really interesting because you know in order for the US and then to Mexico to accept this policy to to be able to advance to be to be con- to be to be built and, and to be accepted, you need to have uh, on the opposite end uh, a formidable enemy, right? Some, some enemy that really merits um, the militarization of the border and, and ex- exceptional measures, by national measures to be uh, agreed upon uh, in order to fight them, right? So uh, you cannot have just any trafficker, of course, and, and you cannot have just any organization. And so one thing that happened in the 1990s is that this narrative of drug trafficking was radically shifted and, 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 and altered uh, in, in agreement with the new understanding of national security threats uh, now oriented to drug trafficking. So back in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, Mexico, Mexican society not only did not conceive of traffickers as, as any particular threat or, or danger to society, much less to the, to the government regime, right, that had um, a totalized, almost totalized control of the territory. You know, back then, of course, the, the pre-party governed Mexico in a very vertical way. So in, in, in those decades, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, and this is something you can um, retrace by listening to Narco Corridos, you know, the folk ballads of the era, or watching some of the B films that um, were very popular back then, you know, the Hermanos Almada uh, flicks that uh, dramatized some of the narco ballads themselves, you know, for example, Camelia La Tejana, La, La Banda del Carro Rojo, all these corridos that, that told stories of traffickers that were actually pretty redundant and residual, you know, people that were living miserable lives, or very precarious lives, that out of any other um, opportunities got into uh, drug trafficking trying to make some money and, and to lead a better life. So back then, the traffickers were used as, you know, cautionary tales for society. You know, look, you know, if you want easy money, if you don't want to play by, by, by the rules, if you don't want to be part of, of um, normative society, sure, you can do this, but, you're, uh, but drug traffickers end up always with bad luck. They're either, they're, they're either betrayed or captured or worse killed um, in the business. So, so don't do this, right? It's, it's not a good life. Um, but you know that narrative shifted uh, tremendously into the 1990s by then now calling uh, the trafficker uh, as an empowered figure that was at the center of society. So what ha- what began with traffickers, you know, in, in in a very vulnerable position back in the 1980s, became very empowered and at the center of society. And so now the the Tigres del Norte, you know, in 1997 came up with an album called Jefe de Jefes, you know, Boss of Bosses, where the trafficker is suddenly, you know, uh, basically singing uh, its own success in Mexican uh, society, right? So I'm a, he was at the center of power, you know, bribing journalists, uh, uh, putting uh, politicians in, in their pocket. Um, and, and basically in, in, in a completely um, uh, empowered position that, that, that knew no limits. Um, and that narrative 
in my point of view at least, uh, was configured uh, as a result of this shift uh, in the national security agenda. So in 1986, Ronald, President Ronald Reagan uh, signed uh, this secret directive uh, calling drug organizations a new national security threat, replacing global communism uh, as the center of, uh, of the new uh, national security agenda in the hemisphere. And after that, um, the Mexican government was pushed into following uh, that dictum and reorganizing its national security policy to adopt this idea that the cartels were the new enemy. And so President Salinas, uh, at the end of his presidency, around 1989, um, began, uh, uh, rather at the beginning of his presidency, began uh, arguing uh, that, yes, you know, cartels were indeed a national security threat. And that language continued to escalate in the following decades. So when, you, when we finally got to the, the presidency of Ernesto Cedillo in the 1990s, um, the U.S. and Mexico were finally talking at the same level. You know, they were seeing eye to eye on this received idea that traffickers were, in fact, um, the new problem. And this is when you know, a cartel like you know, the Juarez cartel became the nemesis of both, both countries. And so both countries, of course, signed these new agreements of cooperation you know, and, of course, transfer of training and weapons. Well, you know, the national security agenda took off, right? Because um, uh, this new enemy can be localized and relocalized at will, right? So you can have traffickers in Colombia, in Peru, in Bolivia, in Mexico. They can be in any state that you need them. And they can justify any level of violence that arises with the militarization. And, and so what is extraordinary is that, you know, in, in just uh, in, a, in, a very, in very few years, the Mexican society went from thinking of uh, traffickers as, you know, uh, residuals of the, the, the national project, you know, people who, who were kind of like a, at the most vulnerable and precarious level to, to suddenly becoming the, the, the new boogeyman, right? The new, the new thing to be feared radically. And, and finally, of course, to the understanding that they were to be blamed of all the violence that uh, was going to take hold of the country, especially after the, Felipe Calderón began his so-called drug on wars, uh, I mean, his war on drugs in, in 2006. So what is astonishing to me, uh, and this is something that I keep hearing every time I talk about my book, um, especially when people want to challenge the title, you know, so why is it that you argue that drug cartels do not exist? Can you see all this violence? What is astonishing to me is that people see a direct connection between the violence and cartels, and it's very difficult to argue against that, right? So people absolutely believe that, um, that drug organizations are to be uh, condemned and, and they're only responsible uh, actors in, in, a, in the bloodbath that, now we, that, that, that have now accounted for over 300,000 killings and over 100,000 forced disappearances. Um, and one thing that, um, that I always try to bring to this discussion is that this violence it was not there before the militarization, right? Uh, so if we look back into in, in the decades before um, the military started patrolling the streets and, and occupying the place of, of the federal police, um, what you see is that um, the decade prior to the so-called uh, war on drugs, Mex the Mexican National Murder Index was actually coming down, you know, from 1997 to 2007. Uh, what we saw all over the country, even in cities where uh, drug activity is supposed to be uh, uh, really high, like in, uh, like in my own city, in Ciudad Juarez, 
what you see is a clear pattern uh, descending, right? So, so you see a violence coming down. And in Juarez, back in 2007, there were about 340 murders, um, uh, which made it the, the least violent year in that whole decade. Um, and, and, and right at the, you know, at the edge of the militarization process, right, in Juarez came a little bit later uh, than in other regions. So the militarization actually began in, 2000, uh, in January of 2008. Um, or, or February, I'm, I may be confusing the two months. Um, and so what you see is that it went from 2000, from 340 murders in 2007 to about 1,600 killings, right, in, to, in 2008. And it kept increasing radically as, you know, the city uh, was filled with uh, soldiers and police officers. Um, by 2010, there were over 3,000 murders, right? Um, so you have an esca a brutal escalation that cannot be explained uh, by, you know, the activities of drug traffickers that, uh, you know, are, uh, paradoxically were not engaging in any sort of uh, exceptional violence before the militarization. Uh, it is the only thing that changed, the only factor that changed uh, before, that, that in my opinion uh, can be associated with violence is the presence of the armed forces. And, and the same uh, phenomenon was uh, replicated in Tamaulipas, in Guerrero, in Michoacán. Um, and there are already a couple studies that, that show that there's a direct correlation uh, between the violence and the presence of the armed forces in Mexico. That, that I don't know how much that point that you just bring brought up needs to be underscored, right? The idea that this remarkable amount of violence um, that you hear about with Mexico constantly um really was unleashed with the 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 war i guess you call it the 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 military operations the war on drug operations i remember i was in i was in, i was actually in mexico living in mexico um in 2006 when uh the first operations of the felipe calderon administration happened in michoacan and uh and and just watching this and and then also following uh some of the u.s policy around that um like uh the merida initiative which you you do mention in your book um and and seeing how the united states started to to finance uh look look at these operations and finance these operations and then on top of that uh um, uh, you know, going back to a point that you made earlier and a point that you make, make in the, your book, um, going and talking to people like in Southern Mexico, like in Chiapas and talk and, um, hearing about places that are, were getting militarized, but also people talking about, well, here they want to start this, this mega project or this dam project or this, they're digging for, they're looking for some sort of uh natural wealth here you know the the sort of connections between this 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 upsurge of militarization and this idea of going after different areas um so i i you know looking at all those it, so my question to you is when you hear about like part of it is is that you write about in your book is that the drug war is so caricatured like it's the people are the the like there's a certain you know, like Chapo, El Chapo Guzman, you know, he's, there's a certain, oh, this, he's got to be this, he's wearing gold chains as shooting like silver bullets from gold, golden pistols or whatever. But in real, but, but in reality, what, it, what is the struggle? If you, if you take, take apart the veils 
of all these like kind of superficial elements that were constantly being reproduced to us but you 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 break them away and start looking at what is it what what do you think are the important points that people should should see of what this thing actually is well i mean i think we we need to first consider that um even though we're constantly bombed with information telling us that um, the drug uh, cartels and their activities are very valuable and they create a multi-billion dollar industry, um, the, the actual figures do not reflect that, right? And, and once you start really looking at what, uh, how much drug, or, uh, drug activities pay, um, it's not, does not really amount, it's not even comparable to um to the vast uh, fortunes that are drawn from um uh, from extractivism right um and so um one thing that i always uh keep in mind when i think of drug trafficking is for example that uh el chapo guzman when he was finally um um uh, judged in in new york city you know in this in this process that that you know was uh, dubbed uh, the the trial of the century right um you you can see that um Beyond the narratives and you know the drama, the dramatic undertones, uh, uh, recalling his personal story of of criminality, there's not much to account for. Uh, he was um, allegedly responsible for about fourteen billion dollars um, in in profits for about twenty years as the head of the Sinaloa cartel, and of course this is what the DA argued, right? Uh, by pulling together together, you know, almost like the receipts of you know drug seizures or money seizures seizures in 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 that long history, about two decades. Uh, but when you compare that, for example, with the cannabis industry uh, in the U.S., the legal cannabis industry, that that already uh, is about uh, the income of uh, generated by you know marijuana clinics and, and and all these products in one year, right? The, the cannabis industry makes about $20 billion already, way beyond what, what El Chapo even dreamed of, right? Um, and so that uh, in itself already tells you that the, the, the kind of the correct dimension, the size of, of this business. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it is astonishing to remember that in states like Sinaloa, you know, with all this uh, terrible uh, atrocities were, commit, were, were being committed, uh, the Peña Nieto government financed one of the largest infrastructure uh, projects uh, of the presidency, right? This this huge uh, polyduct, this gasoducto um, uh, um, that uh, that basically took off from the state, the center of Sinaloa, where the one of the big uh, reservoirs of gas is. You know, the the, the Burgos Basin. Um, that it's uh, that I think it's one the fourth or the fifth largest gas uh, uh, reserve of of the of the world. And and this uh, this duct you know, this pipeline goes from um, uh, Tamaulipas all across uh, Mexico northern Mexico and into California. And one of the big companies that uh, was involved in this project was Sempra Energy, this company based in California that not only um, you know had to bribe and and deal with uh, uh, many different local governments for for different claims of illegality in the development of this pipeline, but that it ended up actually bringing into its board uh, Mexican officials, right, from, from previous governments that, um, that facilitated a lot of the uh, business dealings uh, to make this possible. What, so, so what is incredible, right, is that um, most of the attention in national media was focused on the so-called drug war and, and Los Zetas, you know, um, uh, horrifying everybody and, and causing all this damage. 
But, you know, uh, simultaneously, all these, you know, engineers and, you know, people involved in extraction were perfectly happily working in, in, in extractive process. And, you know, that required, of course, you know, safety and, 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 and time to develop, right? And, and so that same model, I believe, is happening in many other places. Right now, I think the mo most of the attention should be focused on the state of, Son of Sonora, where the, the, the lith a new lithium reserve um, it's it's been explored and and if proof if it proves to be the, the size that they're expecting is it should be uh, a reserve even larger than the one in Bolivia right so lithium it's uh, in the middle of a big national debate President Lopez Obrador wants to nationalize uh, the resource and of course there are already Chinese and Canadian companies bidding for projects I think there are already two projects undergoing but you know all this is happening. Uh, while all this is happening, we, we keep hearing of, you know, drug cartels fighting for the turf, you know, fighting for the plaza. And, and one has to, of course, always uh, question, you know, what, what, why is it that suddenly, you know, a little town in Sonora is so crucial for, for drug cartels to, you know, to put everything at stake and, and to fight for, for that particular path? When, you know, as we know, the 2,000-mile the border offers many uh, alternatives, right? I mean, if, if you know, coyotes and, and, and uh, undocumented migrants can every day come up with, uh, with a new path to try to, you know, to, to gain a new life in the U.S., how is it that traffickers focus so, so heavily on, on one single place, a place that nobody has heard of, and then suddenly, very quickly, you know, fight to death, you know, in, in a different other place that... Uh, appears to be very disconnected from the drug trade. All this, of course, while these tremendous debates and, and, and impossibilities are happening with the, with the extractive industry. So lithium, natural gas, oil, minerals um, are, I think, behind um, uh, the stories of, that we hear of drug trafficking. And, and I think that's where our attention should be focused on. Do you know where the town is, the lith where the lithium or the area of Sonora? Um, I do. I, uh, I I think one of them is Caborca. Um, that that yeah. um, uh, at least uh, you know the Caro Quintero um, cartel. It's supposed to be based in Caborca, um, and I believe you know there's there's so much that that is that remains to be to to, to be known right in the state of Sonora. For example, the the, the infamous killing of of the family members of the Levaron family, right? That that you know that horrified everyone you know, with the brutality of. Uh, of the the murdering of, of women and children, you know, in in, in this um, um, in inhabited place in between Sonora and Chihuahua, uh, of course, was narrative narrativized as as a drug uh, uh, crime, right? As as drug uh, organizations, you know, sending some form of message. But one again has to argue that you know it's difficult to separate the, this tremendous interest that uh, lithium has created uh, in the area. And also other uh, other issues that are that uh, undergo in this in this in the same direction. You know, the Levaron family was associated also with um, uh, the the battle for water. You know, water uh, has become uh, a very um, uh, much precious uh, resource, and the Levaron family was always in the midst of, uh, of fighting. You know, other community leaders and, and, and organizations for for the appropriation of of, of water. Um, in the in the region, so th there are many questions, right, and many and many possibilities. But, but and clearly, drug trafficking can be one of them, right. So uh, I'm not saying that drug traffickers not, are not necessarily involved, but I think we need to think past 
the conventional idea of the trafficker fighting for the turf, you know, for, for you know, fighting a better route for cocaine or methamphetamine and fentanyl, right? I think um, we perhaps need to start thinking of these organizations uh, as some of uh, in, 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 in the field have done, like my friend Ignacio Alvarado or Jorge Torres or some of the reporters, la, uh, like my friend Federico Mastroivani, who are thinking of these organizations as perhaps paramilitary organizations that uh, may have, you know, direct or indirect um, loyalties and alliances uh, with the Mexican military or parts of the Mexican military. And, and I think, you know, that raises a completely different uh, question and dimension of this phenomenon. Um, so I think uh, we have a lot of work ahead of ourselves and we need to um, definitely de defy uh, the conventional understanding and, and narratives of violence because if we don't of course we we will be trapped in the you know in the story making machine uh, of national security but also we're not going to be able to understand the complexity uh, of the processes that are intersecting not only the violence but like as, as I mentioned you know um, the extractive industry perhaps the routes of migration and just the general dispute over Mexican resources that that I think cannot be thought aside, you know, from the violence, right? So, so I think one, one big mistake that we make as journalists is that we tend to separate uh, energy um, and, and the extractive industry as part of the legal global economies and, and, and in a very different department, in a different box, right? We think that cocaine and fentanyl have their own, you know, uh, realm of activity, right? And I, and I think we need to fuse the, those two realms and, and think of them together because most of the times what we're going to find is that um, uh, th what we think of the drug trafficking industry is not as big as we, uh, uh, as we presume and uh, a lot of the uh, violence that it's supposed to be uh, attributed to these organizations it may be betterly, be better understood around um, a phenomenon of the global energy industry. Um, and so we need to think, you know, um, to start, I guess, going beyond the boundaries of national security narratives, right? And, and, and bring those, these phenomena of, uh, into question along with the legal um, uh, activities of the global economy, right? And, and, and I think that would make a, a more sophisticated understanding of, of these phenomena. Yeah, I, re I do really appreciate how you push these, you know, you challenge these preordained narratives and preconceived notions and really push us to be thinking about these things in much, much more layered and much more complex ways and in uh, ways of understanding. So I, I very much appreciate that about um, about your book, The Drug, Drug Cartels Do Not Exist. And as I as as I understand it, you're going to be even you have a new you you'll have a new book coming out. By the way, the drug cartels do not exist will be coming out in English next year. And then you on top of that, you have another book coming out. Um, uh, well, can you explain what this new book is just in a couple minutes? And sure. So so drug cartels do not exist. Uh, try to point out to the fact that you know what what we think of drug cartels really comes from official institutions by uh, adopting and, and putting into circulation an official language that was not really a direct reflection on traffickers themselves, but uh, but on the institutions uh, um, organizing the prohibition and then the militarization in Mexico and, and in other countries like Colombia. Um, 
but then my new book tries to then uh, create trace the history of this language in a chronological uh, perspective, right? So what I do is to go now, not after you know the lives of traffickers and the and the historical appearance of you know the Sinaloa cartel or, or the Gulf cartel, uh, Los Zetas or any of these organizations, but rather to to try to focus on the official language that started naming these organizations and and try and and that started assessing the threat level that this traffickers supposedly um, uh, cause uh, in, in society. So what I do is um, I explore archives, national archives, both in Mexico and the U.S., um, newspaper archives, and of course the, the statements that were produced uh, in, in different eras, try, trying to show that um, what we think and, and, and we think we know about drug traffickers have changed has changed since the 1970s until now in a very contradictory and discontinuous way. So um, I first focus on the 1975 binational um, militarization of uh, the so-called Golden Triangle in Sinaloa, Chihuahua, and Durango that was called the Operation Condor um, that basically brought together the, the for the first time the two countries to eradicate uh, poppy and marijuana plant, um, um, fields in, in especially in the mountains of Sinaloa and uh, instead of say of seeing this as the beginning of you know the um, I guess the the drug war what what I tried to show what, what I tried to show is that it's part of a long history of inserting the military in a phenomenon that was for the most part, um, driven by peasants, by poor people trying to um, find a living, and, and that um, it unleashed this tremendous violence that was later um, organized and, 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 uh, and brought together by the Mexican government with the help of the U.S. for profit and for other political purposes. Um, and so instead of thinking, you know, the, the history of how these organizations were created and, and, and empowered across the decades, what I, what I wish to show is that it is the language itself that has been radicalized throughout history. So we, what, what started first as naming these traffickers as a threat to, to health, you know, to, to you know, uh, as they did back in the 80s, you know, for the children's sake, you know, that, that, that they, drugs were a danger, um, they suddenly shifted to this idea that traffickers were uh, able to challenge and, and defy the, the governments of both the U.S. and Mexico and to really, truly represent uh, some form of national security threat. And so what I, what I follow then in my book is just the history of this language, how it circulated, how it, it created its own uh, discursive enemies, right? So how it named these cartels, even before these cartels were, were any, in any way visible to society. Um, and, and by magnifying and, and exaggerating the history of these organizations, they have been able, of course, to push uh, and divest uh, official spending into the military, into corporations, um, the circulation of weapons. And of course, you know, to just simply make the common public accept uh, the violence of, of these strategies and to normalize the, the violence that it ensued. Um, what I hope to do is even going is to go beyond the idea of drug trafficking as a problem and to focus on the national security agenda in general of the United States that keeps naming and producing new enemies. Sadly, as we know, you know, um, right now, one of those new enemies that have taken 
uh, 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 that has occupied now the center of, of debates in Mexico and the United States is, of course, immigration, right? Um, and how even uh, the progressive government uh, of uh, President López Obrador um, has adopted this radical anti-immigrant stance, um, perhaps trying to favor and you know, win the favor of the U.S. government, but also because I, I believe it understands that uh, it's a politically uh, productive policy. Uh, in Mexico, as you know, you know the, most people support anti-immigrant um, policies in the country. They support the National Guard uh, uh, seizing and deporting uh, scores of uh, immigrants uh, from Central America and Haiti. And uh, in, in, in this way, I believe the Mexican government has just, you know, placed itself expectedly uh, in, in, in the global phenomena of uh, what Jeff Halpern uh, called the, the war against the people, right? The, this planetary um, angst uh, that, that pushes and, and justifies the, just the militarization from the, no, the global north to the global south. And, uh, and in which Mexico is not, you know, any different from, you know, what uh, perhaps uh, Israel is doing in Palestine um, and what the U.S. is doing against, you know, just the entire hemisphere. Um, so w what is extraordinary then is, is to understand that this is not really the story of drug, bad drug traffickers and good cops, but rather of, of a paradigm of a form of government that um, that has unleashed you know this global war against yeah communities precarious people uh, sectors of society that um, are used and objectify uh, for for the purposes of um, expanding military expenditure and control and 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 to implant in society this repressive understanding of enemies to be fought. Um, that leave no room for progress for real progressive policies and of course for for bringing um, government um, structure to to alleviate uh, global injustice so uh, so I think in in the end you know our common enemy is not only not uh, correctly depicted in the in the body of a drug trafficker but it's actually a discourse right an idea uh, that originated perhaps in 1947 when the U.S. passed the, uh, passed the National Security Act and when it tried to you know, create this global platform for uh, narrating and re-narrating uh, enemies that were to be shared you know, with the allies of the U.S. Uh, so I hope you know, that in the end we uh, as a society take a critical understanding of that platform itself right and and to start rejecting the enemies that keep uh, that keep coming out of it um, uh, trying to instead of the position the idea that uh, our governor of course not only should represent us democratically but should represent uh, welfare of the people not not security and I think this is this very pernicious um, violent sense of security that has colonized, uh, most of our um, government institutions. And, and, and so I believe that that's, you know, I guess perhaps the real main agenda for the future. Thank you. I, I, and I really look forward to, to this new book too, when it comes out, it seems like, or it, it will be an invaluable contribution. Um, so thank you. And thanks. Thank you again for, for sharing all your um, insight and research and knowledge with us today is it's very much appreciated and um and so much gratitude to you thank you thank you todd thank you really pleasure to to talk to you and i hope to keep um conversing and, and talking and sharing Great. ideas thanks